0: Hi, I'm Bernard Leung, and you may know me as the executive who has been keeping track of many Chinese tech companies going IPO this year. And in my spare time, I want to find out why they're in a rush to go public this year. You are listening to Analyze Asia, the weekly podcast dedicated to business, technology, and media in Asia. And today, I have Shai Oster, Asia Bureau Chief from The Information, which I am a subscriber. Welcome, Shai, and it's great to have you here again. Thanks, it's good to be back. Yeah, since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Personally or professionally, it's been busy on both fronts.
1: But the thing that's most pressing on my mind has been, obviously, lots of stories. We've expanded our bureau, I think, quite a bit since we last spoke. We're now up to four people, including myself here, based in Hong Kong. Uh, we've got Wayne Ma, who's been writing a lot about Apple and games and working on some good stuff on Google. And Yunnan Jiang has still been doing some great stuff on Didi and startups. And Juro, as well, has been plugging away. And also, the thing that I just want to let people know is that uh, we'll be hosting our second annual Annual Hong Kong event, November 12th in the evening, 6.30 at the Foreign Correspondents Club here in Hong Kong. We've got a really good lineup of top-tier investors and entrepreneurs, featuring Annabelle Long, who is the CEO of Bertelsmann China. She's been investing in China for about a decade. She's oversees a couple billion dollars worth of portfolio, including some of the top firms in China. We have Karen Jang, who's the head of TMT for China for General Atlantic, a really big and powerful private equity firm that's made some smart investments. And then we have a couple of interesting entrepreneurs, Elaine Low, who's a former, she was in the founding member of Tiao Hong Shu Red Book, and she launched a really interesting online-only apparel company called Simple Pieces. And she has a really interesting perspective on how to like, she bridges tech and sort of old school manufacturing. She has to worry about supply chain management and viral marketing. And then we have uh, Daisy Guo, who's a co-founder of Design Tojan, which is sort of an online marketplace for designers and uh, online digital marketing, sort of an online digital marketing marketplace. And she has some interesting insights as well. Uh, she's in charge of HR at the company. And so she's really a smart person on how to grow a startup. And Lily Chung, who used to be the head of AIPAC or TripAdvisor, and is now the founder of Hubble Labs, which is AI incubator. You may notice that these are all women, and that was by design. We wanted to take the opportunity to feature some of the amazing female talents in in Asia, uh, of which there's a lot. And some argue that there's actually more women in positions of power or founders in China and Asia than there are in the U.S., and whether or not that's true, I don't know. But I thought, look, we have the opportunity to, to do this. Let's showcase these women. And I made a point that when I invited them to not ask them about work-life balance, I'm going to ask them about business and how to kick ass in business. Because that's why they're here. They're not here because they balance their work life. They probably sacrifice their life to get to business. But they're all really interesting, smart, sharp investors and entrepreneurs. And I'm, and I'm excited to be hosting them. And Jessica Lesson, our founder, will be coming out as well. And we might have one or two more surprise speakers lined up. So I'm really looking forward to this. Again, it's November 12th. And the only way you can come is if you're a subscriber, which means subscribe to come. I think we're actually offering some really good discounts to people who uh, sign up through this event. So think of it this way. You're buying a ticket to the event and we throw in a subscription for free. Part of the appeal is that these are actually relatively intimate events. So it's not you and a thousand other people. It's going to be relatively intimate space where you can get a chance to mingle and I've seen some of the, the spaces are running out quite quickly the other people attending are also kind of like top tier investors and bankers and entrepreneurs so it's, it should be a good crowd and the FCC has you know good wine good booze it'll be fun
0: it's very refreshing for you to actually just tout women speakers and I actually like it and I'm also committed to do 50-50 for men and women on my show and if there are any good speakers do send them their way to me and I'm really would love to interview them and of course, I've also been hoping that you will me a subscriber event in Singapore because I've been subscribing for the last two years. But of course, that's that's my request as a subscriber.
1: You know, it's not a bad idea. And given that how Singapore is really big in the ICOs, which have slowed down, I'm sure, but there's definitely a growing community in Singapore. And um, maybe we could do something, you know, it's something that's it's kind of, we've discussed it, it's on the agenda. And it might be an interesting way for us to sort of plant the flag in Singapore in a more serious way. Because there are definitely, in the past, I'd say, 6 to 12 months, stuff has been happening in Singapore and Southeast Asia in a way that wasn't before. I think, you know, between Grab and Gojek and Lazada and some of the P2P plays in Indonesia, it's that market is maturing or at least there's money flowing into it and you know you can look at the fund at the at the money that the local the singapore based BCs are raising they're raising bigger and bigger funds right so like golden gate i think is now closed its third and it's quite a big one right i remember when they were first struggling to raise their first fund. And it was kind of like, well, they were facing a lot of of skepticism. And look at them, now they're on their third funds. There's a reason to
0: be in Singapore. So before we come to the main subject of the day, I wanted to talk to you about two stories. I think you have a hand in it. I think the first one is actually on the Google diaspora that shaped the China's tax scene. How has the former employees from Google, and some of them to an extent they came from Microsoft, shaped China's tax scene?
1: So that was a fun story. The idea came to me from actually one of my friends was talking to an ex-Google guy and we were at some conference and he was talking to founder of Best, the logistics company. And they were just sort of reminiscing about all their old friends and what they were doing. And it was like, so-and-so's founded this, so-and-so's doing that, so-and-so's... And they actually are talking about, they were sort of joking about Colin Huang, who's the founder of Pinduoduo, the huge, the recently IPO'd social e-commerce site. I don't know how many billions of dollars he's worth now. So he was one of their like cohort. And so that's where the idea came. I found a list of about 40 executives, entrepreneurs, and investors. It's really interesting because, you know, back when Google first came into China in the early thousands, it was really the place to be and it was able to attract some top tier talent. And that's why these guys were able to go everywhere. And it's one of those jobs that's like, it's like working at Goldman Sachs or in banking or working at the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal. It's sort of like a burnishes the the resume very nicely. And so people who went to Google Or if graduating from Stanford, do you want to be to raise money. And so, you know, just looking around, like, I actually, I didn't realize how many people, you know, anchor, right? I I buy anchor products all the time. They do the battery packs and power chargers. You know, Steve Yang was from Google Best Inc., which is recently IPO'd about a year ago, IPO'd logistics company, Johnny Cho was from there. The VP of technology for Billy Billy, which is like video sharing of games. I was surprised also that Didi Chu Singh has some Google guys. What else? Kwai I was surprised the, the founder, Su Hua, is a Google alum. And I spoke to James Mee, who's a founding partner of Lightspeed China Partners. Which Lightspeed Capital is sort of a spinoff from Lightspeed Capital, and they're they're a big investor. And they actually are very active. He described it as the PayPal Mafia of China, but they're really like an alumni association. So they gather a couple times a year, in different cities, and they bring in speakers and they kind of invest in each other because they know each other. And uh, so it's really interesting to see how influential they are. I guess the most famously influential person would be Kaifu Lee. You know, he's ex-Microsoft, but also he sort of launched Google in. in was one of the earliest executives for Google in China. Certainly his, his Google experience, I think helped kind of raise his profile. I was also surprised. I didn't realize that two of the Xiaomi co-founders were
0: ex-Google guys. No, you're talking about Li Bing, right? He's from Google China. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. And the Hong Kong, it's definitely had, uh, you know, there are about a thousand active members in this community that they've created. So they actually, they really function like a community. They have uh, huge WeChat groups. So big they need special permission to make them bigger than, I think the, the cap is like 600 or whatever. So, you know, they, they sort of support each other with ideas and in some cases with funding. So yeah, its its it, it had an influence, even though, it retreated from China almost a decade ago, eight years ago now. It, the Google name kind of lived on in the way it's sort of all of these founders and uh, executives uh, carried that Google corporate culture and DNA. And because Google was sort of, it was very analytics driven. And I think that's what these people carried with them was the way that Google did two things that people talk about was that it was very like, okay, well, let's look at the numbers, you know, like very data driven, but also had corporate ethics. People talked about the corporate ethics that Google had. And you can argue whether or not that's window dressing or whatever, or whatever, whatever the value of it may or may not be and how you can address that. The people who left it carried that ethics or the idea of those ethics with them and trying to do something more than just make a buck, but to make something meaningful.
0: So this is very interesting because it's also shaping most of the the movers and shakers of the China tech scene will all be coming from most of these Google mafia. Very similar to the story of our Uber China mafia after Uber China left the market. But anyway, Google is planning to get back into China so we can wait and see maybe there's a second generation wave of that. But I want to ask you another question. You did an article on China's electric car market is falling short. I mean, I've been hearing a lot of stories about companies like NIO, Xiaopeng Teacher. Why has China focused so much in the electric car market? And how are the Chinese electric car makers compared against their competition from the US, for example, Tesla, which just built a factory in Shanghai? There is Japan-Nissan. There is also German, which is the VW Group, and Daimler.
1: So Tesla has bought land for a factory. They got a long way before they opened a factory. So, okay, why, why electric vehicles in China? A couple of reasons. Pollution. China, it's not a slogan for the Chinese government to talk about reducing pollution. Pollution is vile in China. They do try to take concrete steps to make the air quality better. So certainly car taking cars electric is one path to that. It's also about technological innovation. The Chinese government really strongly believes in, in the auto industry as one of these bellwethers for a country's development. So almost the way like Mao used to look at steel production, right? Like the Great Leap Forward, we will make as much steel as England. So the car industry has kind of this sort of flagship industry. And if you can make a car, there's so many other things that go into making a car that it actually improves your overall economy, improves your overall innovation. So going electric is sort of a path to that. The other element of that, how do Chinese car companies rate versus electric car companies rate versus Tesla? Well, mixed picture. Right on the one hand, you have BYD, which is used to be just a battery company, and it's, I tell the story like only in China could you have a consumers be open to the idea of buying cars from a from a battery maker. It's kind of like no one in America would be like, "Hey, I just bought a Duracell four door." You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I, I got I got an Energizer sports car. Right? No way. Like, it just wouldn't work because in America you have legacy brands. And that's the amazing thing about Tesla is he was able to, you know, Elon Musk, for all of his insanities and weirdnesses and quirkiness, he was able to build a brand, right? Compete against like, you know, in America like People have been buying cars for generations. It's like, my dad bought Ford, I'm going to buy Ford, or my dad bought Honda, I'm going to buy, like, you know what I mean? Like, it's a family tradition, which cars you buy. And in China, there was, it's an open field because dad didn't buy a car because no one bought cars, right? So sure, my battery company is going to make a car. Why the heck not? Okay. uh, You know, there's no brand loyalty, right? Because there was no brand 20 or 30 years ago, 40 years ago, right? other than like Shanghai number one automotive. That's not really a brand. BYD is doing quite well when it comes to like the municipal side of things. So they do buses really well. But when it comes to like building a sexy brand, consumer-facing brand, then by far, you know, Tesla wins hands down. But, and there's a big but, in China, Tesla is a luxury vehicle. It's the thing you buy if you're a hotshot entrepreneur or VC founder or whatever, because it's going to cost you, I think, you know, after import tariffs, it's like a hundred thousand dollars around that. All right, it's it's a luxury brand car. It's not mass market. It's doing really well as a luxury brand, but that's what it is. You know, and what's funny is that the Chinese startups, Xpeng, Neo, uh, Neo, all these other guys, are also positioning themselves as luxury brands. Which I guess they want to follow the model that Tesla does, right? You go into these high margin luxury sports cars. And you use the profit from those high, high margin cars to eventually make it, you know, to fund expansion into mass market. The funny thing is, while these guys are paying attention to the high end and are winning the, you know, mind share and doing the IPOs and getting VC funding, something on the ground has been happening is that there's been a huge explosion in the super, super low end of electric cars. And by these, these are like practically golf carts. The journal wrote about it, a great piece. But you could already see these like even when I was in Beijing a long, long time ago. Basically, mini cars, they're like souped up golf carts, literally. And there's like uh, hundreds, if not thousands of these manufacturers. And in the third and fourth tier cities, these things are taken off. They've gone huge. So already there is a mass market in China for these short distance commuter electric vehicles. It's just booming, right? And they're they're running not on like high fancy batteries. They're like, they literally are just golf carts that have just been repurposed for, you know, and tweaked and made a little better for personal use. It's interesting because it follows sort of on the footpath of uh, the electric scooters in China, right? Like, you know, I remember everywhere you turn in China, people are riding these e-bikes. And the funny thing about these mini cars, they don't require driver's licenses. So that's another reason why they're so popular. So while these Chinese upstarts are are fighting and by the way, the Chinese upstarts, they have a lot of problems because just like Tesla, on on the one hand, like electric cars are really appealing because the thinking is that like actually they're much simpler than making a car. A conventional car is essentially a controlled explosion that moves forward, right? Well whereas an electric car, it's like the basic moving parts are relatively simple, right? Like the engine there's fewer moving parts, you don't have to worry about things like gearboxes are really, really complicated to do. In fact that's why they're imported mostly, right? But electric cars don't have are much, much simpler theoretically. But mass producing things with lots of moving parts are harder to do than phones. And that's where Tesla was struggling and really surprised people. And that's where these other guys, you see like production numbers that the new Chinese companies are talking about are minuscule, like thousands, not hundreds of thousands, thousands. So to go from a few thousand to hundreds of thousands is really, really hard. The other thing, this was really interesting. I had I interviewed the head of Yuxin, which is this uh, Chinese-listed second-hand uh, used car market online car market. And I thought, oh, okay. Like, tell me about you know electric vehicle. And he's like, there's no market for second-hand used cars because guess what? Just like your cell phone battery dies after a year, the same thing's going to happen with your car battery. Is that its capacity dies relatively quickly, and especially for not the top tier Chinese car makers, but the second tier guys, the batteries aren't as good. And so, you know, he says that Chinese consumers, when they buy a car, they have in their mind, okay, I'm going to buy it, I'm going to use it for a couple years and I'm going to be able to resell it and like not, you know, recoup some of my investment. But with an electric car, that doesn't happen. Now with Tesla, it used to have these buyback programs, which I don't know if they exist or not, but also its battery is sort of guaranteed for a long time. So it's a different experience, right? And I don't know that the other car companies can guarantee the batteries the same way. And interestingly, is that there's no point in replacing a car battery because it's about 60% of the value of the cost of a car is the battery. So I said, so in his mind, potential penetration for electric cars is really limited by its resale value. Because at some point, like, people aren't going to buy a car that they just have to dump as a total loss after six years or seven years. People want to buy a car that they can either resell or keep for 15 years.
0: So does it mean that we're going to get something like a car pollution, as in like what is happening to bicycle pollution in cities and, and other provinces in China?
1: I don't think so because you know cars are much more expensive. These bikes are being dumped because the cost is negligible, right? If you you have a billion dollars and it costs you you know three hundred yuan, what the equivalent of like forty or fifty U.S. dollars, then that's user acquisition cost, and so you can just flood the market with these throwaway bikes. You can't flood the market with throwaway cars because still the capital cost per car is quite high. But I do think that what is interesting is that there are a lot of dead electric car companies in China already, right? Because there was so much subsidies going into that. And very quickly, the government just pulled back a lot of these subsidies. And so you already see, if you look closely in the Chinese media, there are reports of sort of these dead car companies
0: with actually, you know, giant fields full of cars that are never going to be sold. That comes to the main subject of the day because since we're on the topic of Chinese companies, I wanted to understand why Chinese tech companies this year are all going IPO in droves and also some of the implications that this is actually happening. So I did a check based on Forbes, Chinese tech companies are rushing to go into the public markets offering to sell at least 8.5 billion worth of new shares. This year. I mean, maybe the number has already been driven up even further. You have actually done a lot of work in looking at public markets. So maybe I want to start by asking you to help my audience by setting the baseline of the conversation. What does it mean for a company to go public?
1: Oh, so, you know, going public means to offer your shares on a stock exchange. And, you know, companies have been. Typically, t- getting private investments from a handful of your your buddies, angel investors, and then they go through several. As they grow, they keep taking more and more investors into the company, whether it's venture capitalists. And then, as you get bigger and bigger, you know you might go from five million dollar investment where you sell ten percent of yourself to a hundred million dollar investment, and then eventually, when you you go public, you you're listing all of your shares or part of your shares on a, on a publicly stock exchange. And it just used to be like the end game and graduation, right? You grad. Graduated to, to the public markets. What has happened though is that companies have stayed private for much longer because they were able to raise, it used to be unheard of to raise a billion dollars from a private fundraising because it wasn't done, right? The only place where you could raise that kind of money would be in a public market. That of course has changed in companies like Uber and DD, WeWork, et cetera, et cetera, where companies are able to raise billions of dollars without going public. And uh, while going public has a lot of advantages, for example, you're able to offer stock options to your employees, you can keep them happy. Uh, It makes it very easy to borrow money, which is borrowing money is always cheaper than selling debt, than, than than raising money through selling pieces of yourself, right? You'd rather borrow money than sell a piece of yourself. So when you go public, banks can look at your SEC filings and they can look at your stock price. And so they're much more comfortable and you can easier to get cheap debt once you're publicly traded. You can do MA more easily when you're a public company because then you can use your shares to do different things. So there are lots of advantages to it, but there are disadvantages in that you've got to like sort to your shareholders every day, right? If your if you're, if you're stock tanks, you've got to like jump to it. And it's very hard sometimes when you're at a high growth loss making stage, for example, to justify, look, don't worry, we're losing money, but we're trying to make market, you know, we're trying to grab market share. Just stay with us, stay with us, right? This is sort of like Elon Musk's issue with Tesla, right? Who's facing a lot of pressure, even, you know, short sellers and all sorts And then the question is, well, why were so many companies going public this year? Because the markets at the beginning of this year were insanely hot. Kind of a natural cycle, like, you know, people put in money, money, you know, 10 years ago, and you know, there's a the fund has a 10 year life and kind of people expect an exit, right? Uh, the fund managers need to bring cash back to the pension funds to pay the bills of the pensions and all that stuff. And so this seemed at the beginning of the year, this seemed like a great opportunity to go public because the markets were hot. Whoops, then the markets turned and everybody's pretty much all- almost everybody who listed in Hong Kong has gone, it's been disappointing, but depends on your perspective, right? So on the one hand, it's disappointing because people are trading like at the IPO price or below. Oh, Okay, that's bad because so if you bought at the IPO, you're not making a zillion dollars. Or if you bought just pre-IPO, maybe you haven't like you know made as much money as you thought you would. On the other hand, there is an exit. There means that their people took money out. So investors got cash, which is, so that means it was kind of a victory. Like this is proof is because as long as you stay private, it's really hard to exit a company. If you're a private company and there's like, let's say there's 30 investors in the company, I have to go and like find the middleman to sell share. Let's say I have a, a mortgage payment and I need to you know, dump my DD shares. How am I going to do this? I can't just like do it on an open stock market. I gotta like go find somebody, a middleman, negotiate the price. It's an illiquid asset. Private companies are illiquid. When they list, they're fairly liquid. From one perspective, this has been, even though the share prices have been underwhelming, at least there was there's proof that there is a
0: viable exit. And so that's actually encouraged people to put more money into China. So this is where I thought it's very interesting that you pointed out about the liquidity. And I think that some pundits out there have actually made the comment that because of this record-breaking access of Chinese companies, it allowed a lot of liquidity to flow back into the market. So it actually creates more VCs, more angel investors. So that the market is becoming like similar to what's happening to the US. Do you agree with that point of view?
1: I don't know. So there's a weird bifurcation because China has like this whole screwy system of capital control. So there's like actual two parallel universes when it comes to China investing. There's the people who raise money in remnant B in Chinese yuan. And then there's the people who raise money in dollars. And because the currency is controlled, those things aren't freely convertible and they kind of operate in parallel universes. They're sort of like alternative realities. If you want to, it becomes so bizarre, right? So if you raise money in remnant B, that means the people who have remnant B generally are going to be rich investors and in companies based in China. And if you raise money in dollars, generally speaking, the investors are going to be overseas pension people who have dollars. And that's going to be whether somebody based in Hong Kong or Americans or Tomasic or whatever, right? It's going to be this sort of offshore universe. And the Chinese domestic universe, if you raise money in Remnant B, it's really hard for you to eventually list in an offshore exchange because you're going to have to figure out how do I convert the currencies and all these problems. So that means that you're going to listen to the domestic stock market. If you listen to the domestic stock market, there are rules. You have to be profitable for a number of years before you can list. So that changes the entire business model. So you got to figure like, you know, you can't be an Amazon and list in the Shanghai exchange, you can't be unprofitable for
0: years, but growing into a massive scale, you have to be profitable from day one. This is where I'm going to ask a question, like you pointed out that many tech companies in China more than 10 years old, I will look at companies like Xiaomi, Meituan, Dianping, they're about eight to 10 years old, for them to go public, I can understand because the investors have waited long enough. But for companies that are less than three years old, for example, Pinduoduo and Byte Dance, they are now going IPO too. What's the calculus behind it?
1: So Pinduoduo IPO, Byte Dance, not yet. Pinduoduo, I think there's also the window, right? everybody's looking at the window and the window is closing soon. The question is, so Pinduoduo had amazing growth. The numbers are super hot. It is unusual. Like, so the question is like, are, are they looking at the market as a sucker? Like, let's dump this while, the good, while it's still good to dump. It also could be like, okay, if we go public, right? So there are actually some people who say that, who say like, they think Pinduoduo went public because the private markets the smart money was saying, I don't buy this. Like, this needs this isn't, this isn't sustainable. This growth rate isn't sustainable. Oh, it's going to kill you. I'm not so sure. I think it was more driven by, you know, they have a super good story to tell. They know the window is closing because everybody knows that interest rates are going to come up, right? Like, there's been this insane, you know, quantitative easing is like, is over. And so everybody knows that these good times are ending. People would know the rumblings of a trade war on the horizon. And so, if you have any intention of going public in the next couple of years, this might be your last opportunity to get a reasonable valuation on the public markets because it's going to get ugly pretty soon, right? Once interest rates start going up, money's going to pull out of the market. Trade war, God knows what. Already, you're seeing tech stocks universally getting hammered. Whether it's you know the fangs, so I think there was a little bit of anxiety and a rush to go public to, to see an opportunity that was still available. Kingdom is a weird one because, you know, like it they seem to have a real business model, but it's kinda like it's especially a weird one because it's another case where here's a business that has nothing to do with what any American will ever understand, but it's listed in the American markets. So they're always gonna have to explain themselves to an investor
0: community that just doesn't use the app. And by and large, investors who don't speak or read Chinese. But then what about ByteDance then? I mean, they are clearly in what we call the total Me, 20 Mping, DD I mean, DD hasn't wanted to go IPO yet, but why is ByteDance doing it? Is it just because they want to get the liquidity fast or they think that they have a great story to tell then?
1: I mean, ByteDance's growth is insane. It's absolutely, absolutely insane. and And they print money. They print money. I think also, you know, their valuation is astronomical, $75 billion. You know, there's been a lot of reports that they will IPO next year. They won't. I don't I don't think it's a done deal yet that they're going to IPO. But now is a good time to IPO because they have a great, great growth story, right? Especially what they've done. And it hasn't really been really addressed. It's, a, it's, it's one thing to grow a viral app in China. I mean, that's a great thing, right? You know, but they've grown a viral app outside of China. TikTok was the success outside of China. How many Chinese companies have had viral growth overseas? Has WeChat done it? No. Has Alibaba done it? No. Has Xiaomi done it? Kind of with the phone that they sell at or below cost. And I don't think that's sustainable. And ByteDance has done it on something that's cultural, which I think is really, really surprising. Their algorithm has shown that it doesn't care that it knows how to give you addictive content regardless of where you're from. And that's really interesting. I think even Facebook should start getting nervous. They have shown consistently. So that's why I think, you know, I don't know whether or not they're going to IPO. I think though the problem for ByteDance, ByteDance is, it, this, this is the funny thing. So it's a $75 billion company. It prints money and advertising, it just literally prints money, billions of dollars a year in advertising. revenue. However, This is a company that's primary business is in media in China. It has, in my opinion, so much regulatory risk, you know, at any moment, like, because propaganda, uh, Sun Quan, right, is a core function of the Communist Party. It's core, right? It's not like commerce, which is, you know, Alibaba is not core function to control and but propaganda is core function of governance in China and so you have this company that is kind of in that sphere and to me that's just a huge risk now of course you know everybody with money disagrees with me and that's why they're they're rich and I'm just a journalist hack but I'm kind of like and that's why I think like if I was at ByteDance I would be diversifying the heck out of my company trying to get as much business outside of China as possible so if there's ever a day, like, because the idea is that, like, you can do viral content by being a little sexy and a little risque, right? And That's what kind of ByteDance did. And then they got slapped on the wrist a couple of times and they got hammered I mean, harder and then they had an app shut down. And now when you open the app, it's like, you know, government, you know, Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping, Xi Jinping, and then the stuff that you want, right? So then they use the karaoke stuff, which is less sensitive. But like how long, you know, but then the government, there's no clear delineation of what is polluting and what is like, it's not just about being pro something, it's also about not being socially corroding or unhealthy. And that definition can change. And at some point, it can become, you know, they can keep changing it to try to meet the new requirements, but at some point they might just be boring, and then you know what I mean. Like I, I, that's my question: is like at what point do they just become boring and no longer and like?
0: So does the choice of public stock exchange, for example, there is Nasdaq, there is New York Stock Exchange, there is Hong Kong Stock Exchange, and there's Singapore Stock Exchange as well, matter to how these Chinese tech companies go public?
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. So the the, the biggest difference was that the dual class share structure was until maybe about a year ago not allowed in Hong Kong. So. You know the dual class shares where a founder might hold a minority of the company but have sort of super voting rights. So you know in the case of Alibaba, Jack Ma, I think holds less than five percent of Alibaba, but he and his co-founding cohort, these are thirty partners or whatever the number is, control the company to these super voting rights that they have. You know, you have different classes of shares and then different ways to structure it. And Hong Kong didn't allow that. So if you were going to list in Hong Kong, you either had to own a majority of the company, which actually you see a lot of like smaller companies where the chairman will hold like 70% of it, in which case, you know, why even bother? And it was only with after losing Alibaba and other companies that the local exchange decided to allow dual class listings where where founders would still have control of a company, even though they might not own a majority of the shares. And there's also different approaches to what's going on in, in the market. So Hong Kong is actually still a retail-driven market, surprisingly. It has good liquidity and it can absorb a big IPO, but there's a big active retail investor. And that means, I think I think that can lead to more volatility because retail investors will jump in and out. Whereas the U.S. is still primarily driven by, well, it was primarily driven by institutional investors who would buy and hold, but now you run the risk of like all the uh, algorithm traders and that's added new layers of complexity what's going on in the US. There's also certain stories work better in different markets. So the US, arguably the smart, the institutional investors understand businesses like an Uber or because they've been trained by Amazon, Facebook and, and other online businesses, they understand that you can be a good business without being a profitable business if you're growing market share. Whereas other, I think Hong Kong is seen as less understanding of that kind of
0: approach. Does that mean that the Hong Kong stock exchange in terms of the way they think about these Chinese tech companies will change? Or actually, all these companies that are now going public, for example, like Xiaomi and Meituan Tianping, are not doing very well. In fact, they're all trading below the starting IPO price. Would this actually have implications to the Chinese tech companies going IPO in, say, Hong Kong stock exchange?
1: You know, it's hard to say because it's it's, it's universal truth right now. On, on the one hand, they were able to, as I said, like it's it's like Well, the company's listed. And so so. what if your stock is down for a while? You probably, you know, like the whole market's down for China tech, and for tech. But you were able to get an IPO. You were able to get, and people got exits. So that's still interesting. And the Chinese people at the exchange are still very interested in trying to court Chinese tech companies. And in particular, they're very interested in trying to court fintech companies. So I don't think that, you know, and, and the experience of companies listing in the U.S. has also been kind of, challenging so i don't think that will matter so much it's kind of more of like does your company fit the stories that people like in different markets
0: i I think with xiaomi and meituan diamping going public in hong kong's exchange makes a lot of sense because people in hong kong still understand what xiaomi phones are and maybe some of them go to shenzhen they know how the meituan diamping super app works right so at least there's some understanding of the product. I mean, if you were to go to the US and you tell someone Xiaomi phones and Meituan think they will be clueless in that sense.
1: Yeah, but they don't know what Alibaba is. Like who uses Taobao in the US? No one, right? But yet it does pretty well, or relatively well. So I don't think, you know, that's because you can sell yourself to the institutional investor and, you know, they can still do decently. And actually, a lot of like the weird P2P financing platforms chose the US. But so familiarity doesn't necessarily guarantee a better performance, uh, to my surprise. You know, Xiaomi just really, it was weird, like, you know, pre-IPO, they were they were doing the rounds and explaining they're like, oh, we're not a hardware company, we're an ecosystem, we're a software play, don't give us a hardware valuation, treat us like a software company where we have so much scale, blah, blah, blah. And it was okay, like, okay, so who, you know, but within China, smartphone sales are capped and slowing because it's a saturated market, you're just going to be fighting over a thinner and thinner margin. And yeah, your ecosystem of software seems to be doing pretty well, but that's kind of limited by the growth overall of the phone. And said, so, no, 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 no. We're doing great in overseas in India and Indonesia. Like, okay, cool. But are these people in Indonesia and India using the Xiaomi ecosystem of software? It's like, well, not so much, but they will. And it's kind of like, well, that's a weird story. So you're, you know, like if you're selling your growth, they, they, their story was just muddled. And I think they, they overreached. I think now their market, like, so they were talking, aiming for hundred billion. And what's their market cap right now?
0: I think it was sold below 50 billion on the starting IPO price. So it was half of what they originally wanted. And, and what's it doing now? Let's let's find out. What's it doing now? It's about twenty percent of the market. Yeah. It's now
1: trading at like thirty four or something like that, thirty four billion? They were really aggressive in selling that story. May 20 and ping is is I actually have more Confidence in
0: them being able to recover, but we'll see. I I wanted to ask this question. I think it's a philosophical question in some sense. I have been a fan of dual class shares, and I really don't understand why it took so long for Hong Kong stock exchange and now Singapore stock exchange. In fact, Singapore stock exchange haven't gone into the dual shares model. Also, given that the situation now that Chinese tech company shares are not doing well in Hong Kong, does that mean that the investors will still go back to the US as the benchmark? Or would that be a cultural change that people would be much more open to dual class shares?
1: No, I don't think it's, I think it's sort of, you know, this is an anxiety that's worldwide. I don't think it's necessarily seen as like, oh, well, Hong Kong failed. And remember, it's still what, six months to a year, you know, we need to look at, I don't think, I don't think people will pass that kind of judgment. You know, these windows are sort of ephemeral. The mood is right, right? It takes six months for an IPO. To be put together, at least, you know, you start the process rolling when the market's high, and by the time you actually sign the last contract, oops, the market's come down again. So I, I don't think that the performance, you know, I don't think Hong Kong is that much worse right now than you than would be in the US. I actually don't like the dual class system because I think, you know what I mean, as an investor, why would I invest in a company Like the point of my owning shares is that I also have a stake in it. I don't just get to ride it. You know, I don't just like investing in companies where you're unable to influence the outcome. It's kind of like, well, okay. It's kind of like buying a lottery ticket. Like maybe this lottery ticket will be worth something or maybe not. I mean, founders sometimes screw up and need to be kicked out to be really harsh, right? I
0: don't think Steve Jobs would have been as great as he was if he hadn't been fired first. My view is slightly different. I think the problem with public markets is that it doesn't give a lot of flexibility to companies. You're actually fighting every quarter. Mm. And hence, you need something to allow whether it's the founder or the management team to be able to make transformation to a dying business because you can be listed on public, but your industry is actually collapsing. So you need to have a way to go to get out of that conundrum. And the only way to do it is to have a certain control mechanism that is put in the management team or in the founders. Maybe because I have been an operator and I see this happening all the time. So I'm, for one, much more on the side that we should have deal class shares so that the management team can do what's right for the company rather than worrying.
1: Maybe they're wrong. Maybe the management team is wrong. How often does it happen when management teams are wrong, right? The other question is like, so you can't think, like companies lie all the time. They hide reality all the time. The other problem is that like, it's true everywhere, but I think it's more true in the Chinese companies where founders get surrounded by an echo chamber of yes men and women. And so it's very easy to make start making stupid mistakes because you're in an echo chamber where no one wants to stand up to you because everyone's getting paid by you. You know what I mean? Like look at a case like Jia Yueting, right? Lo T V Lo Shu. So I don't know, you know, it's it sounds noble and good that the founder knows what's best for the company, but they can lose their way, right? And then what do you do, right? If you, oh, I'm just a shareholder, I can just dump their stock, I guess. But you know, and I think if companies have to make that kind of radical transformation, you need to be able to communicate that. It's weird how like companies just don't like talking about what they're doing.
0: Yeah, I agree with you. And, and to be fair, I, I think we agree to disagree. And I think it's interesting. It's a very philosophical uh, view of how investors should think of companies but i want to get back to the conversation to ask you in the past few weeks there is exacerbated by the pending trade war already happening trade war and also the massive dump of china tech stocks what does it mean for the rest of the chinese tech companies what would have implications towards them going public or maybe want to stay private for a while and maybe you know softbank might be there to help them to cushion for another few years by being private yeah,
1: don't count on SoftBank for a long time. I think there's, boy, oh boy, that's going to be really interesting to watch because SoftBank might be running into all sorts of trouble. I think whether or not the money that they expect to be there will be there. I think they're falling price share price might have an impact on the structural division fund but that, that's a separate thing what's funny not funny but what's interesting is so the, the collapse of the domestic Chinese stock market has meant that a lot of the VC funding in Remin B that sort of uh, the, the local venture capital universe has collapsed right because all these money all these companies were borrowing money or raising money based on their exorbitant share prices and all that—all these people who promised to pay you a zillion dollars are now, like, my stock is in the toilet bowl. I have a, a margin call on loans for a million Ferraris. I'm toast. And so, startup valuations are going to come down. But what's happened is that because in the U.S. or overseas, public markets are shaky, people are actually raising more money. People are frantically raising money for the private markets, for private equity and VC. So there's actually a lot of very, very large money being raised in the dollar world. And so, you know, companies will be able to stay private. They're probably going to be cheaper than they used to be, right? It was weird that actually Chinese companies were trading on the private markets at a premium to the US, which is crazy, right? I guess because they're like, well... There's insane growth. My growth, you know, my scalability is going to be huge in China, yada yada. But like, they really shouldn't be trading at a premium to the U.S., right? Because it's just it's a developing country after all. But so I think that's what's going to happen is that companies will be able to stay private longer and will choose to stay private longer. But they're gonna and they'll, you know, people will be making investments, but at a much more reasonable valuation than say in the last six to twelve
0: months. Just one more question: There is no second market equivalent in China going on now similar to the US markets where some of these employees and founders can actually return some liquidity by selling to the secondary market.
1: Oh no there is, there is. Yeah, there's there's nothing I don't know if there's an official market like in the US. I forget the name of it, but there definitely you know are definitely brokers and a lot of private deals, but there's there is a secondary uh, like a a small market for for people looking to cash out. But it's just it's just always more complicated like right? because
0: it's uh, illiquid, it's opaque, it's about connections and who you know. Shai, many thanks for the conversation on this whole Chinese tech companies going IPO. And, and seriously, I would love to get you back at the end of the year because you did an absolutely awesome review. I think it's one. you're still one of the highest downloads in my charts for the Analyze Asian podcast.
1: Really? How many downloads did we get?
0: Oh, well, mo- definitely more than 50,000. No kidding. All right, great. So I'm definitely getting you back in a few weeks time to close the year so that we can talk about predictions and trends this year. So, but in closing... I want to ask you, can you recommend a book, podcast or anything else that has impacted your work and personal life recently? Oof, uh,
1: you know, sound opinion. I've been listening to a lot of music and I listened to uh, Sound Opinion. Uh, it's a podcast out of Chicago. These two very funny music critics. So it's totally a way to disconnect from tech and China and just talk about tunes. That's been really valuable to me. I still have Duncan. Clark's book about Alibaba—it's about 3 quarter way done, and it's a really interesting book just for the history of how China tech, you know, first started out. And of course, you know, you got to talk about—you should at least buy Kai-Fu Lee's book on AI superpowers, just because it's been such a talking point. He's done this incredible uh, speaking tour. And raising, I'm drumming up publicity for it, and I just think, if nothing else, the guy's a genius in marketing himself. And, and he's, you know, this is certainly a topic that's that's struck a chord uh, in the U.S. That's definitely something to keep an eye on. Yeah, I've been listening to. Uh, interestingly, I've been spending a lot, a lot of time on Spotify, listening early '70s soul and funk. So that that soothes the soul.
0: <laughs> How do my audience find you?
1: Find me at shy, Shai S H A I at. Theinformationallinword.com all one word, Again, that's shy S-H-A-I, at TheInformation.com. Our website is TheInformation.com. Our event is November 12th. The only way you can come is if you subscribe. So think of it this way. You're, you're spending not a lot of money to come meet some amazing, amazing entrepreneurs and investors, tell you the real scoop of how to survive in these turbulent times. And we toss in a subscription of the amazing, amazing must-read information, where every story will generate returns on the investment. And your Twitter is Beijing Scribe, right? Yeah, at, exactly at Beijing Scribe. If you want to see stupid stuff about my lunch, it's, that's also no. I also tweet a lot about China tech, and and I try not to tweet too much about politics, but sometimes I get riled up. So so don't don't mind
0: the occasional screed. And of course, you can Google me at Bernard Leung, and you can definitely find us on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, a and now Spotify. Definitely send me a feedback and give us a five-star rating on iTunes store because that helps us to be discovered. In. And of course, a star on Overcast and Pocket Cast. And of course, to some of my listeners, thank you for walking up to me during the World Economic Forum and actually... Uh, speak to me that I didn't know that most of you are decision makers out there. So thank you for your support. So once again, shy many thanks and I'm going to get you in the year end. So we will talk
1: again soon.